grace abundant. That we might know you and make you known. Make us attentive to your word now, we pray, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Children, you are dismissed. Off you go. Uh, If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan. We're working through the book of Philippians, um, and we will continue on. We're going to be there in verse 27. Verse 27, I hope that you all have uh, uh, drinking an extra cup of coffee for that one hour of sleep that you lost. I can see we already have a few casualties in the room. Folks didn't quite make it up. That's all right. Um, It is a joy to open up God's Word to you, but before I do that, I just want to reiterate something that... uh, that you heard Nick mention, not this coming Friday, but the Friday after that, we're going to have a men's night with Dr. Aiken. He's going to be preaching to us. He's the president of Southeastern Seminary. He'll be preaching our covenanting service. And uh, that's going to be a wonderful opportunity to get to know a very godly man that's been through a lot, to learn about what it means to, be, to train leaders, what it means to be a, a godly husband to a wife, what it means to um, raise up four. He has four sons, all love Jesus. And so we can learn about that. Um, there's a lot that we can learn from him. Very informal night. That'll be not this coming Friday night, the following one. So you'll want to make sure men and be there for that. Uh, we are here, as I mentioned, working through the book of Philippians. Uh, and uh, in a way, in order to try to get us thinking about that passage, I would alert you to uh, my office. Many of you have not been there. Most, some of you have. If you were to walk into that office, there's a lot of pictures hanging on the wall. Uh, but you would notice there's at least two pictures hanging on the wall that would maybe in some ways be related. The first one is a very large picture of a solitary soldier from the American Revolution. And he has a flag of his native country in one hand and he has a rifle in his other hand. And then across the uh, room there, there would be a small picture uh, where you see a lion there. And a lion is standing there looking very passionately, as it were, into the distance and below that is two words followed by an exclamation mark. And those two words read, stand firm, exclamation mark. And I put those two pictures in my uh, office to remind me of something that I am too oft to forget. And that is that we're at war. We as Christians are at war. That's the way the Bible represents the Christian life, oftentimes. Uh, we think about the words of Jesus that said, He's sending us out as sheep amidst wolves. We think about the words of Paul that says to put on the armor of God every day. Think about the words of Paul who wrote to Timothy and said to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then we think about this passage that we have today. Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to be dealing with the verse 27, but I'm going to read down to 30, which we'll look at the next two verses next week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It has been granted to you that you For the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So I mentioned we're going to be looking at verse 27 alone this morning, but I want you to notice something here. 
We've seen already that Paul is writing from prison. He's just finished telling us back up in verse 2021 that he's prepared to live for Christ and to die for Christ. And here there's a noticeable shift in the language. There's a shift from him talking about his own experiences into now beginning to address the church distinctly, directly. And you'll note the tone of his words, friends, could not be any more clear. As we read them, stand firm as one. Strive side by side for the gospel. You're engaged in conflict. You will suffer. If we weren't careful here, we might be led to believe this is a general speaking to his lieutenants just before they step off to battle. And in a way, that's not too far off. So I want to talk to you this morning about living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Or borrowing the kind of theme here, fight in a way that befits the glory of your king, Christian. Verse 27. Living worthy of the gospel. That's the theme. That's the takeaway. That's the title. If you get nothing, grab that. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's think about that for a moment. First off, looking at verse 27 there, you should know, beloved, that that word only, you see it there in verse 27, only, there's a shift in the conversation. That word only is not a throwaway word. In the original language, it has a level of force behind it. So Paul is beginning to transition his dialogue away from his situation to theirs. And he does so with a great deal of vigor. In essence, that only there, what it's saying in the original language is, it's saying, listen church, just one thing. One thing. That's the sort of tone. That's what he's saying. One thing. Strive. Have ambition for just one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Of Christ. Another way of rendering that sentence, we could read it this way also. One thing, live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. Because he's going to talk about citizenship in chapter 3, verse 20, citizens of heaven. That word could be translated the same way there. So basically, what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi is listen, act like who you are, have your lifestyle fit your passport. Don't conform to the patterns of the loves of this world. Be conformed to the love of the heavenly world in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're investigating the Christian faith, you should know this is something that you should pay very close attention to. If you're evaluating the Christian faith, thinking about it, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is the most important thing to us as Christians. You should know that if you're evaluating the Christian faith, thinking about the Christian faith, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is the most important thing to us. The gospel of Christ, friends, is the story of our lives. That's the story of our lives. As we as Christians, we're trying to orient ourselves around that story. Because the reality is, right, we're all oriented by a story. All of us are. You are as well. All of us are oriented by the story. For you, that might be the story of your personal ambitions. It might be the story of the American dream might be the story of your accomplishments, your success, your notoriety, your fame, your influence, success, whatever it is. But for us as Christians, we are oriented by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the story we are attempting to order our lives by. You should know that as you think about Jesus and the Christian faith. So it says gospel there, friend. And so gospel means good news. So we believe that we are orienting ourselves by the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. And you should know that this story is not just truth for us and maybe not as much truth for you. 
We understand it to be the truth. The one truth. Like gravity is truth. You can't decide whether or not you think it's true. It's not true for just one person and not for the other. Gravity is true for all people. So in the same way, we believe the gospel is truth. That Christ is the only way to salvation. And so we're orienting around our, ourselves around that reality, that story. And so we come here every single week to be reminded of that story. Because like you and your story, we Christians can sometimes forget our story. It's sad, but it's true. Sometimes we forget the story of the gospel and the love of Christ. And we come here every week to be reminded of it. And so the call of Scripture to live a life that is worthy of the gospel or to live as though we were citizens of the gospel of Christ, friend, is a call to you as well. You should know that. That's a call to all of us. That you would lay your life down and no longer live for your glory, but instead you would take up Christ and His glory. That you would be freed from your enslavement to sin. Through faith, by grace, you might come to know Christ who is the ultimate joy. That's our prayer for you, friend. I hope that you will find Christ. You might be tempted to believe, though, when you hear this gospel of Christ, you might be tempted to believe, or maybe somebody told you, as even represented to you, that you have to kind of earn your forgiveness by your obedience. Maybe somebody shared that with you. You might even be led to believe that this verse right here, verse 27, is commanding that. You might be led to believe, friend, as you evaluate the Christian faith, that this verse, verse 27, is saying, make your lives good enough to be worthy of receiving the gospel. Maybe that's the way you read that verse. But friend, that's not what this passage is teaching. That's not what any passage in the Bible is teaching. There's no passage in the Bible that says that you have to earn the grace of God. Because to earn grace is contradictory, right? Grace is unmerited. It's free. Take a, if, you were to, if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to show you a verse 28 up on the screen here. But you see that this is not what that verse is teaching. It's not telling you to earn the gospel. He says there in verse 27, Paul does, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And if you look right there in the very next verse, not frighten, verse 28, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them, that's the opponents, of their destruction, but of your, the Christian's, salvation and that from God. So when Christians act like Christians and advance the message of, the, of Christianity, the gospel, it is a clear sign that when they're advancing it, it's a clear sign of their possession of the gospel. It's a possession of salvation, not of earning it. You can't earn grace. So Paul is calling Christians to evidence their citizenship, to evidence or illustrate what has already occurred in salvation. And so because of that, as it says right there in the text, our salvation, look at verse 28, our salvation says that it comes from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. We see, as we also see at the beginning of this passage in chapter 1, verse 1, back in the book of Philippians, up at the very top of this letter, we see that we, are, we who believe are all saints in Christ Jesus. Saints are not the elite of the church. Saints are those that have been made holy by Christ through faith. We are holy through Christ Jesus. We are not saints in ourselves. We're saints only in Christ Jesus, not by our good behavior, but by Christ's behavior on the cross and the resurrection. So God takes the story of the gospel and by grace, he applies it to our hearts as we believe or have faith in the eternal realities of the gospel. And so maybe you're asking, okay, well, then what is that gospel? You say that's what you're orienting yourself by. I know about Jesus. I've heard of him. What is that gospel? What is that you're orienting you Christians are orienting your lives around. What is that gospel? Well, here it is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, 
the one that was sent from God the Father, took on flesh, lived a sinless life, the life that we should have lived but did not. He obeyed when we did not obey. And so when he went to the cross, rejected my men, goes to the cross and dies, his death is different from our death in that it's an atoning death for those that believe. It's paying for sin. Even though sinners had done nothing but sin against him, his life was like a sacrifice for those that believe. He was crucified, buried in the tomb, and on three days he rose again to illustrate his triumph over life, or triumph over sin and death. And so those that repent of their sin and trust Jesus alone for salvation, they too can have the life that he had in the resurrection. They can be born again. And we receive that again by grace. Grace is receiving something we did not deserve. And this good news then changes the realities of our life. This is why we use the language as being born again. Our lives are, are, are done. They're dead. And we live for Christ now in His glory. That's the good news. That's the story that we want you, friend, to find and to live in light of. We appeal to you, friend, to trust Christ that you might become a citizen of heaven as well and take up residence inside His people to know Him and to lighten Him and live a life worthy of such a beautiful redemption, a beautiful love. And friends, that's our call as Christians. If you're a Christian, this is our call. We are called not to earn our salvation, but to evidence our salvation, to illustrate that it has already changed us and to do so in a way that fits the infinite beauty of its reality. Paul is calling the church to become in practice what they are declared to be in truth. Live in a way, friends, that fits the beautiful story of redemption. Live in a way that fits the beautiful story of redemption, Christian. May the aroma of our lives smell the same as the intoxicating perfumes of the Prince of Peace. May our lives taste as delicious as our deliverer. That's what Paul means by living worthy of the gospel. He's saying that the story of our lives and the story of the gospel of Christ should look like they go together. Not just on Sundays, right? On Mondays and Tuesdays, and on Thursdays at 2.37. And at 8.30 when you wake up and you didn't get an hour and you don't want to go to church because you want to sleep. Then too. Live in a way that fits the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the story of Christ. Remember, Christian, the gospel is the story of Christ who was rich, yet we yet came to be poor so that we who are poor might become rich in Him. That's the story of the gospel. We think about the story of the gospel. The one who was first, Christ, became last so that we that are last might become first in Him. That's the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is the king, the king, the one true king became a pauper so that we who are paupers might come to know the infinite glory of our king. Oh, Christian, come to live in a way that is worthy of the infinite worth of the glory of Christ. Live in light of that. Live in light of that reality that you say has happened to you. And so as a community of faith, as a church, then if this is happening to us, and I believe that it has, if this is happening to us, then we ought to be a community that's compelling, right? Compelling to the world, compelling to those around us. The church should be a compelling community that has love abounding more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent. 
And so be pure and blameless. Evidence that we are pure and blameless. We would evidence the fact that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Christ to the praise and the glory of God. That should be happening in the life of this church. We should be salty as Christians. Flavorful. Full of life. And full of light since Christ is light, right? Our lives should be different than our neighbor's. Demanding a verdict. And so Restoration Church, I beg of you, may we not live lives that are worthy of ants. May we live lives that are worthy of the King of glory. He's worth it. He's worth it. Let's live lives that are worthy of the glory of Christ. I love how Pastor Charles Spurgeon puts this. He says, if God has called you to minister, don't stoop to become a king. So let's work from the gospel and be bold enough with the gospel to push it into the darkest corners of our city and the darkest corners of our world, exerting ourselves so courageously that we have nothing else to conclude than that the Spirit of Christ has so taken hold of us. Or as the great missionary William Carey said, may we expect great things from God as we attempt great things for God. Let us do that. And so one thing, Restoration Church, as we put this, Paul is calling Grace Church Philippi into these things. Remember, he's trying to to confront some potential arrogance or pride or disunifying stuff that is bubbling up from within inside the life of the church. And he's calling them to remember the thing that they're united by. And so may we take heed. May we learn from Paul as he writes to this church. May we be the same way. May we live as though our lives have been changed by the gospel. And so you say to me, okay, Nathan, that's great. That's helpful. Can you tell me a little bit more what that looks like? I'd be glad to do that. We're going to look down to the rest of this verse here. The short answer to that question, what does it look like to live a manner worthy of the gospel? The short answer to that question is standing firm together in unity as we advance the gospel. Standing together in unity as we advance the gospel. So let's just parse that out. This is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is Paul's instruction to the church there in Grace Church Philippi, reminding them of where their unity is so that they would not have that unity fractured that the gospel would advance through them there in the first church in Europe. So first off, look at verse 27 there, standing firm. What does that mean? And how might we learn from that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Only let your life... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. And to stand firm is to love the gospel so much that you advance the gospel in the face of rival messages no matter the cost to you. That's what it looks like to stand firm. When rival loves attempt to topple the king of glory, you not only stand your ground, you push those enemies back. That's what it means to stand firm. A good image here would be the image of David and Goliath. David is standing firm in the face of Goliath. David was not passive when Goliath was cursing the armies of the living God. He stood firm in that he went out. The rest of the Israelites are too mindful of their own glory and the preservation of their own lives. David is glad to set his life aside in order to stand in the gap. That's standing firm. He was not immobilized by fear, the preservation of his own life. David stood firm by standing in the gap against the pagan Goliath because he would not have the king of glory's name tarnish. That's what standing firm looks like. It rejects passivity 
And it rejects luxury in favor of advancing the king of glory. Standing firm, friends, doesn't wait to be asked to serve and advance the gospel. Standing firm uh, senses a kind of glad-hearted responsibility to be vigilant and to find ways to press the gospel in. Standing firm involves a great deal of gospel initiative. We see it when Christ knows the heart of the self-righteous Pharisees who wondered if He would heal, heal a man on the Sabbath who had a withered hand. You all remember that story? Christ saw their hardness of heart, was angered by their hardness of heart. He loved the poor and the needy. And He loved those things. He loved the poor and the needy more than the traditions of men and the expectations of men and what may come to Him. And He did heal the man on that Sabbath day. No matter the cost, He stood firm in that moment. The text tells us right after that they plotted to destroy Jesus and were led to believe that Jesus knew that and did it anyway because He stood firm in advancing the love of God to those that are needy. That's what standing firm looks like. And Paul wants Grace Church Philippi to stand firm in the same way. To not just be passive, not just let things happen in the life of their church, but to try to stand firm for the realities of the gospel and take ground as it would come to them. He wanted them to live like this no matter what may come. In particular, no matter if he would come. So Paul, that whole notion there when he talks about in verse 27, whether I come and see you or an absent, what he's saying there is he doesn't want it to be like a parent, like, you know, my kids do this all the time. Clean your room. They don't clean their room. And but well, I'm going to come back there. Well, then they start cleaning their room, right? He, Paul is saying, listen, I want you to love Christ, love his gospel, advance the gospel, be together, stand firm in this, whether I come or whether I don't. He wanted them to live in a manner worthy of the most worthy gospel by standing firm, rejecting passivity, pressing in. So, brothers, sisters, don't be feathery Christians. Blown about by the wind. Don't be feathery Christians, but be Christians that are like rocks that roll down the hill of deception. Knocking back any pebbles that get in the way of advancing the glory of Christ. Paul goes on to describe even more, though, as to how we can stand firm for a worthy gospel. He goes on to be even more clear about how we uh, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says there in verse 27, standing firm in the unity of spirit. See that? Now, while your Bibles may not capitalize that word spirit, I do believe he's talking about the third person of the Trinity. I do believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the same spirit he just referenced back up there in verse 19. I say that for two reasons. One, because every time he uses the word spirit in this letter, it's always in reference to the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in every other instance. But two, he uses this language of one spirit in other places in his writings. And every single time, it's very clear that the context is pointing to, again, the Holy Spirit. So I do believe that when he says one spirit, he's talking about one Holy Spirit. So even still, though, you're asking the question, well, Nathan, what does that mean? To be of one in the Holy Spirit. Standing firm in that. Well, he means to be firmly rooted inside the collective benefits of Christ. Being firmly rooted inside the benefits of the collective benefits of Christ. So stand firm together as one church inside the one thing that is able to make you a people that are able to live as citizens of the gospel. Or to say it a different way, Paul is saying, don't be one in some other benefit. Be one in the benefit of the Spirit of Christ. 
Be together for the gospel. That's what he's saying. Be together for the gospel. Don't be together for the college students that happen to be Christians. We love college students. Glad you're here. We want more. Don't be together for the middle class American families who happen to have the gospel. No, no, no. Be together just for the gospel. May that be the glue that keeps you together. Don't be together for a particular kind of music style. No, just be together for the gospel. Stand firm by being of one spirit. That is, be together for the gospel that the spirit unites us all inside of. Remember, this is Paul is trying to connect. He's trying to dive at these false sort of things bubbling up from within. And he's trying to remind them of where their unity is. I'm reminded as I was working through this passage of when we planted this church some eight years ago. We went through uh, untold uh, conferences and we read books. And there was kind of a common refrain back then. I'm not sure how much is happening in the church planting world today. But what they told us is, is we needed to find a target group. It's not wrong, per se, but they told us we need to find a target group. They said, you know, you're, you have a, you're a middle class family so go find a bunch of middle class families and unite them use that go find the college students go find what other some other kinds of thing that will have people to naturally begin to come together so that you can build a crowd as quickly as you can and then gospel them that was the teaching but here's the thing guys we rejected that counsel for one reason we did not want to gather a church naturally have people come together for natural reasons and then happen to have the gospel. We wanted the church to come together supernaturally. Right? Supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because we've got all kinds of different people from different places with different backgrounds and different interests and different lifestyles, but we are all together in the gospel, held together by the Spirit of God. We wanted to be held together and come together supernaturally. We didn't want to be, nor do we want to be, a church that is united in anything other than the Spirit of Jesus Christ and the gospel that He came to unite us in. That's it. And so, friends, if... Restoration Church, if we found out tomorrow that Jesus actually didn't raise from the grave, there should be something about this church where our unity would begin to collapse immediately. Our unity should begin to fracture if we found the gospel to not be true. And if it doesn't fracture, if we found the gospel to be wrong, untrue, and we kept going, something's wrong. But if we have the gospel as our home as our unity then nothing can stop us right nothing can stop us no weapon formed against us will stand the gates of hell will not prevent our advance but if we drift and no longer stand firm in the unity of the spirit and we start to be unified by some other gospel not that there is another gospel but if we start to be gathered united under some other gospel then we will begin to fracture from within and we will crumble. And we won't make it. And this happens, guys, every day. Churches close their door. I don't know what the numbers are, but they close their doors all the time because they began to be united in something else. And they got united over something else or someone else other than the gospel. And so this is why the first line of our covenant reads, that Bible verse, we will work together for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we're going to talk about all kinds of things in the life of our church. We'll talk about singleness. We'll talk about marriage and family. We'll talk about 
you know, all kinds of other things, manhood, womanhood. We'll talk about those things. But we are not united by those things ultimately. We are vigilant in standing firm in the one spirit of Jesus Christ. And in that, we begin to live a life that's worthy of the gospel together. We stand firm by the unity of the spirit. But we also stand firm by the unity of mind. Look there in verse 27. He goes on. Standing firm in the unity, in the, with the spirit, one of spirit, one of the spirit. We see there. And then also it goes on with one mind. So we stand firm in the unity of mind. What does that mean exactly? Well, friend, that is a very uh, difficult thing to understand. The word there is for the same place we get our word soul or psyche. So it's the place we would find like a psychologist, right? We'd use that same word for a psychologist. And what does a psychologist do? Well, a psychologist is trying to understand the mind and how the mind is interacting with how we behave, right? That's what they do. Mind and behavior. So when Paul says that the church at Philippi should stand firm in one spirit with one mind, he means that they, that we, should stand firm in both the way that we think and the way that we live. See, when the spirit takes up residence in the Christian, he takes over not just the thinking, but the living. When the spirit takes up residence, he also takes up not just in the living, but in the thinking. Both. Now we may, uh, instead of actually shifting with the winds of culture, whose values change from every passing generation, we are rooted, friends, instead in the old roads of godly wisdom that tell us to be who we are in Christ Jesus, that tell us what it means to really live. That's who we are. That's what we're striving together with. And so, in light of that truth, that's the one mind of thinking and living together, those important realities. We're going to be conformed. We're going to be tied around those things. So we may and do diverge in a thousand other ways of thinking and living, But the church of Christ should be of one mind when it comes to the most important questions of life. Now, for us, you say, what does that look like here, Nathan? How do you know that? What does that look like? There's a lot of things as to thinking and living. Well, for us, it's those two documents we go back to because they're so important. We go back to our statement of faith and our church covenant. Those things are not infallible, those documents. But all they do is they help define for us what what we think as a church and how we ought to live as a church. That's what they do. They just try to make that clear. And all it is is just Bible verses put together. So we believe, our statement of belief tells us what, our, what we think. And then our church covenant tells us what it looks like to live out what we think. It's just trying to make flesh out this passage right here. And so we want to be clear. We want to be clear as a church and clearly lay out what we believe the Bible teaches to, on the most important questions, what it means to think about those things, what it means to live those things out. And so you should know, guys, that's why we're so, uh, so important, why we think it's so important to have church membership and to talk about church membership a lot. Because we take verses like this one seriously. See, we cannot stand firm in the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the mind if we don't know what you believe. And if you don't know what we believe. Right? So we have the membership process in order to try and live a life worthy of the gospel as a congregation, standing firm in one mind and one spirit. And the whole process, the whole membership process is to try to tease that verse out. To make it clear for you and for us. And which, by the way, I think explains why we have such a sweet fellowship here at Restoration Church. Because we've tried to make that clear. We try to live in light of those things. And make those secondary and tertiary things less important. I was thinking about this 
uh, as I was riding home in a car a few weeks ago. Um, actually, it was a couple months ago. Got in a car, and there was two brothers that happened to pile in the back of my car that represent the sort of poles of the political spectrum in the life of our church. You know who you are, probably. They got in the back of my car, and we're sitting there, and as they got in the car, my mind, I look up in the rearview mirror, and my first thought is, how's this going to go? And I was so pleased to find, within just a moment's notice, these two brothers begin to speak graciously and warmly to each other. As if they were, you know, brothers in Christ. Such a beautiful thing that doesn't seem to happen much anymore, right? But it happens here because I think we're trying to make this one spirit, one mind stuff so clear. And so they're united in that. And so we as a church, we don't get this right all the time, but we try This church, I think, is united in the most important things. And because of that, we can fellowship, I think, with great joy, even if we disagree on, say, immigration policies or on things like global warming or things like whether or not the whether grace precedes faith or faith precedes grace. We might disagree on that important reality, but we're still together for the gospel. And because of that, we're able to enjoy fellowship together in unity because we've made that stuff so clear. And guys, I think this is important to be of this unity in these most important realities, one spirit, one mind, standing firm in that. I think that's always important. It seemed to be important to Paul as he's making these truths known to Philippi. But I think in our day, in particular, this is even more significant because it's more and more likely, it seems like things are fracturing and communities are beginning to factionalize more and more. Where we can't have conversations of meaningful weight, it's difficult to do that. And so we here... And the church can stand out against the tide by having strong convictions about the most important realities and hold those other things less significant and still be able to converse and enjoy fellowship with one another. That's getting less and less common. And we're able to do it here because of the unity that we have in Christ, the one spirit and the one mind and standing firm in that. So this is difficult and more difficult to find in our day, but we can find it here inside the church, which will be, by the way, a wonderful witness to the surrounding community. And so live as a... Live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in the unity of the spirit, in unity of mind. And thirdly, stand firm in the unity of action. Unity of action. So this is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Take a look down there at verse 27 again. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. Stand firm, he says, in one spirit, with one mind. And look at those next words. Striving side by side. Striving there means contending, contending side by side. It actually has the word inside of it where we get our word athlete inside there. So it has this idea of competing even. So taken together, Paul wants the church in Philippi to stand firm in oneness as they contend, as they compete, as they strive against this present darkness, side by side, working together as one. Paul, again, he's concerned about these things that are coming up from within that's going to disunite them. And he wants them to be firm. Listen, don't strive against each other, he's saying. Strive together as one and push back the darkness. Some of you have seen those pictures of Napoleonic Wars, right? Where the men are lined up shoulder to shoulder in tight lines. American Revolution, American Civil War, these kinds of things. Have you seen those pictures before? The men are lined up shoulder to shoulder, marching towards the enemy. The banner or the flag of their country or whatever it is is 
flapping in the breeze up above them as they marched together as in line. That's the image here. Not that Paul had knew anything about Napoleonic warfare, of course, but what he was thinking about is people standing side by side, contending with the banner of the gospel waving high and marching out towards the enemy. Taking the ground that's Christ. So the church is the army of Christ marching together side by side with the banner of the gospel held up with great pride as we push back the darkness in the world. Now some of you know I've experienced Napoleonic warfare. I've stood side by side in those lines. And I can tell you that marching in those lines is every bit as difficult as it appears. And it's every bit as difficult as life is to do that together in unity. I can tell you there can be one guy on the line as you march together side by side, just one guy that just a little bit pushes left or just a little bit pushes right, and the whole line begins to waver. Or you can have an officer on one side of the line saying, march right, and the, or the other officer on the other side, march left, and the line begins to fracture, to waver, to come apart. And so we need the soldiers not only to put, not push too hard, too hard left or not push too hard right, we also need those officers, the leaders of the church, to stand out and make sure that we are collectively working together to push the glory of Christ together. And we, all of us working together as one, forward marching, not pushing too hard one way or the other, but looking ahead, remembering the banner of the gospel, holding together as one. And guys, here's the thing. When you do that, if you find an army, I can tell you that when this happens, when you get an army that is lined up shoulder to shoulder, it's officers clear on their way as to where they're going and why they're going, and the soldiers in line marching with great vigor, looking to that banner of the gospel moving forward, I can tell you that when that happens, the devil himself can't stand against that. This is what Paul is after. In the Philippian church. He wants the Philippians to be so united by this gospel. That they're standing united one by one. Marching in line. That they don't have all these other less important things. Or pushed back. Then nothing's going to stop them from pushing the gospel out. And that's why Paul goes on to talk about in verse 30. This conflict that he has had. He understands there's conflict out there. But we can't have conflict in here. We've got to be one. Marching together. We need each part of the body to do its part. No one thinking of themselves as better than another. They all know, we all know that we need each other to do our part. And so churches that are fueled by the gospel and work together like that, they are the most potent weapons on planet earth. It doesn't matter what size of the church is. I don't care if it's 50, 500, or 5,000. If you have a body of men and women looking to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ, working as one, striving together as one, side by side, with the same spirit and the same mind, nothing can stop them. The Christian faith, friend, was never meant to be an individual sport. We work together as one amongst the people. See, here in American evangelicalism, there is this kind of emphasis Overemphasis, I think, on personal salvation, individual relationship we can have with Christ, and that is an undeniable truth. And I'll even say more than that. It's more than an undeniable truth. It's a good truth that we can individually know Christ. But friend, that is far from a complete definition of the Christian life. When Christ saves a people, his intention is to gather them together in the church as one so that they would then live uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel together, striving side by side with one another as one so that they will contend, they will compete, not with one another, but with the powers of this present darkness that are trying to hide the glories of Christ. And we do that best together as one. And so, Christian, 
your right to want to change the world. Your right to want to live on mission, to do something. Your right to do that. But you should do that inside the life of the church, striving side by side with others for the glories of Christ, understanding that that glory of Christ, that gospel is your most important mission. Striving side by side with others for the sake of the gospel in the world. And so the effectiveness of your individual life in that mission will be to the degree that you involve the church. They are the people Paul is writing to here, right? Let's not forget that. This passage, this letter is to a local church. And he talks about side by side. That's the context of those words. Side by side. Working with others in the church to advance the gospel. Too many people, though, I think, see the church as something, at best, just kind of something that slows them down. Or some people see the church as something that's just not really that important. And so they just sort of, the church gets the leftovers. Well, listen to C.S. Lewis's take on this in his book, Screwtape Letters. Basically, this book is the game plan of the kingdom of darkness, Lewis's letters. It's a senior demon writing to a younger demon in training. The senior demon is showing the younger demon how to defeat the enemy, which the enemy, of course, is Christ and his people. So that's the context. Listen how he explains to defeat the enemy. Quote, this is a demon writing to another demon. Keep him, the Christian, from others who belong to the enemy, from other Christians. Don't try to have him say no to fellowship. Instead, have him say yes to everything else. And when the enemy, Christians, when the enemy stirs his heart about being part of a church community, whisper that he can get more involved as soon as his schedule opens up. And if he does get time with believers, don't panic. Work with our fellow demons to keep the conversation shallow. Whisper to him that he's the only one with weak faith and that if he says something, he's going to feel out of place. Don't let any of them ask how he's doing. And especially, don't let any of them pray for him, because that's how I lost Peter. Do you remember Jesus said he was praying for Paul, or praying for Peter because the devil wanted to sift him? So if you're a follower of Christ and have kept your distance from the church, either because you've had a bad experience with the church, maybe you're nervous to engage the church, to be more side by side, or because you just didn't think the church was that important, can I just encourage you? to move closer into the life of the church, take up your line, take up your place on the line, strive side by side, live a life worthy of the gospel by striving side by side with others in the church as we take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. And if you're a member of this church and you are only giving this church the leftovers of your life, let me encourage you to take up a place also in the line and stand with us as we march inside the love of Christ. Carry that to the world. This is the place, Christian, you should know. The church is the place God intends to grow you the most. Through the life and ministry of the church, striving side by side. I've got a premarital counseling session this afternoon. I have to explain this every time in premarital counseling. Listen, I know that you know you think she's beautiful and amazing, but listen, what's going to happen? She is beautiful and amazing, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to move in with each other, and all kinds of stuff's going to happen. Right? That's what happens when we move a little closer to each other. It's harder, but it's better if we stride by side, side by side together. Together. For those, for the many of you that are striving, I just want to encourage you, 
We have so many people in the life of this church that are striving side by side for the life and the glory of Christ in the gospel. I want to encourage you to keep going. God has done and will do great things through this ministry as we continue to labor together for the faith of the gospel, which is the next and final illustration as to what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We said that it's standing firm. And we said it's standing firm in the unity of the Spirit, unity of mind, unity of action, as the church standing side by side, striving together. But lastly, we see standing firm in the unity of the advancement of the gospel. Standing firm in the unity of the advancement of the gospel. Here we see the aim of the church in action. Paul, remember, we have to remember what he's up to. He wants to see the gospel advance. That's why he's in prison. He doesn't want church at Philippi to get bogged down. He wants to see them go. So we have to remember that we not only live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel ourselves, the church at Philippi shouldn't, we shouldn't, but we work together for the faith of the gospel in others. That is, we are not only living this out on our own and in the church, we want to see others come to enjoy the faith of the gospel as well. And so we know that's what Paul means. We know that's what Paul means because the sentence goes on to talk about not being frightened by opponents. That then assumes that the church strives together side by side as we advance, speak the gospel to the world. And isn't this, friends, what Jesus commanded us? He said to his disciples right before he ascended to go to the Father, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. This is Christ's great command. And so, Restoration Church, what do you say we do this? What do you say that we strive side by side, advance the gospel into our city, into our communities? What do you say we do this? Give ourselves to this. We've already been doing this. I thank God for that. We've got to work together to bring about the faith of Christ in our own community as we strive side by side, not just for ourselves. Let us not exist just for ourselves, but for our neighbors and for the nations. Let's make disciples. Let's be bold. Let's strive together. Let's stand firm. I don't know if you've noticed this, Restoration Church, but it's been a little while since we've baptized a new believer. I hope that bothers you bothers me. I pray about it a lot. We didn't baptize a single person last year that came to faith in Christ. Now listen, I know my theology, right? I believe that what the Bible teaches is we sow the word, God brings the growth. We can't make people be Christians. But listen, there's 135 members of this church. Surely, as we pray and spread, God will bring in new believers. But I want us to do this. God wants us to do this. Paul is calling Grace Church Philippi to do this, to advance the gospel. And we must do this if we're going to see ourselves grow and know the glory of Christ in that way. Because evangelism is another way of showing the glory of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. Jesus prayed, didn't he? He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors. Isn't that what he prayed? So guys, we can be assured that by that verse, we then know that there are wheat. There is wheat out in our city. We just got to go get it. We got to go bring it in. Now here's the thing. We're going to see this next week. It's going to cost us something to do that. You're going to suffer if you do that. If we try to be more 
Strive side by side together. Stand firm in the gospel. Advance the gospel, as he says there in verse 27, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You're going to have opponents as you do, but listen, it's going to be worth it. And guess what? You're not going to do this alone. We're going to be together, right? Side by side. We're going to be right there with you. And so as you share the gospel, as you push the gospel out, don't do it alone. Take your community group with you. Take a friend with you. Pray and go and be glad to let the gospel be made known so that Christ would be glorified here in our city. Pray about this. Pray about this. And for those of you that are not Christians, again, evaluating the Christian faith, we are far from a perfect church, but let me encourage you to come in, ask questions. We're happy to help you know what it means to follow Jesus and to advance for the faith of the gospel. So I'd invite you to speak to me, speak to your neighbor. But friend, don't leave here without asking the deep questions of the gospel. And Restoration Church, I pray that we would be this verse. I'm going to read it again and I'm going to pray. Verse 27. I'm going to say this as a prayer for us, as an exhortation to us. Restoration Church only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage.